Hi everyone, this is Adam. Before we start our usual discussion, we'd like to announce the launch of the Oslo Forum Peace Writer Prize, a competition that rewards bold and innovative writing about the world's peacemaking challenges. If you enjoy writing and have creative ideas for peacemaking today, perhaps inspired by some of the conversations you've heard in the Mediator Studio, then this is your opportunity to share your ideas with a wider audience. To find out more, visit the Oslo Forum website and look for the Peace Writer Prize. You can also find the link in our show notes. Now, on with the show. I was trying to convince them on very rational grounds that, look, you have this violent story to tell, but they too have this violent story to tell. So how do we move on and stay together and live peacefully? We have to see the hurts that each one has experienced. From the Oslo Forum, welcome to the Mediator Studio, a podcast about peacemakers, bringing you stories from behind the scenes. I'm your host, Adam Cooper. With me today is Miriam Coronel Ferrer, the chief government negotiator for the Philippines during peace talks with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, the MILF. These talks led to the signing of the Comprehensive Agreement on the Banks of Moro in 2014, ending half a century of insurgency in the southern Philippines. Later on, Miriam served on the UN standby team of senior mediation advisors, where she supported peace efforts in the Maldives, Afghanistan, Iraq, Kosovo, and the ASEAN region. She also teaches political science at the University of the Philippines. Miriam Coronel Ferrer, welcome to the Mediator Studio. Thank you, Adam. I'm happy to be here with you today. Wonderful that you could make it. I'd like to talk about why you became interested in politics. So let's begin with the People Power Revolution that saw the end of the Marcos regime in the Philippines in 1986. It could have been a bloody confrontation, and yet mostly peaceful demonstrations won the day. You were in your early 20s. What motivated you to take action? Well, I was part of the long struggle to overthrow the dictatorship. The moment came somewhat unexpectedly in 1986. I was in heated debates with fellow activists because some activists actually felt that this was not real. They were expecting some other way that this regime would end, maybe through some kind of a violent process, through armed struggle and all of that. And I was telling them, look, this is happening. It's the mass movement that's changing the face of our uh, politics. And it happened, the last straw that actually forced the Marcos regime out of power happened through largely peaceful means, and that was phenomenal. It shook the whole world and many other similar initiatives to push an end to long-standing political crisis through peaceful means have followed afterwards. So it's fair to say you had a commitment to peaceful means from an early stage. Let's talk a bit about your work in the 2000s because at the beginning of the decade, the UN Security Council passes Resolution 1325, a landmark moment for the inclusion of women in peace processes. And you start doing work on the ground in the Philippines, engaging civil society, promoting inclusion. How did that prepare you for your role as government negotiator later on? Being a peace advocate meant that we were actually following the process. So the end of the Marcos regime opened up different arenas for pursuing other tracks. And peace negotiations are actually started with all the different armed groups. But at that time, the military wasn't ready. It was sort of standing in the way. And maybe the armed groups weren't ready themselves to really explore the democratic space that has happened. 
So we stood there as third parties, several of us, many of us in the peace movement were led by women. And we did all sorts of things to really bring the parties together. I was a third party actually engaging both government and the armed groups and helping process with them the possibilities for that kind of a politically negotiated solution. And that was some kind of mediation role. I was an internal mediator before I became a government negotiator and then eventually moving into the UN position as senior mediation advisor. So you were already working then in the 2000s trying to bring the conflict parties together, even as you say, the, the conditions may not have been ripe yet. But before we delve into your role as a government negotiator, I'd like to give the audience a bit more background because in the early 1960s, a movement begins aimed at separating the Muslim-majority Moro areas in the Mindanao region in the south from the rest of the Philippines, resulting in an armed struggle for independence. And over the next few decades, over 120,000 people are killed and hundreds of thousands more are displaced. Some call for independence for Mindanao, others for regional autonomy. And previous efforts to find a peaceful solution to the conflict were often interrupted by outbursts of, of serious fighting. But in July 2010, you joined negotiations on the government side in efforts to finally resolve the conflict with the MILF. What made you and others feel that the situation was ripe for a serious peace initiative? President Aquino came in in 2010. She needed a political leadership that would see through the process and really stand by it. It requires a lot of political capital to defend a policy of negotiating with an Islamic group. There's the global context to worry about. There's the regional context where the Jemaah Islamiyah at the time, Al-Qaeda connected cells have actually penetrated our soils in the southern part of the country. So standing up and being able to say, this is my policy and I want to keep it. That was very important for the head of government to really stand strong on that despite the political losses that he might incur by precisely taking that position. So you have a president that states a commitment to a peace process. He brings in you as a lead government negotiator. Was there any skepticism from within other parts of government? And how did you deal with that? No government is really monolithic. Governments are made up of different institutions, different persons, different perspectives. And they do have specific mandates, which we need to understand. But it did help that some kind of willingness from the top to really find good compromises, that was very helpful. However, it wasn't that easy for the security sector. It took some time for the military to really get sold on the ceasefire. And it's a good thing because the negotiations actually started in 1997 with a ceasefire agreement. It had its ups and downs. It's been broken several times, but over time, those military officers from the colonels up to the generals who were exposed to the benefits of a ceasefire agreement in being able to really distinguish between the moderate Islamic groups, which is the case with the more Islamic liberation front, and the ones that are more violent or indiscriminate means are being deployed through bombings and all of that. So a good ceasefire makes a good political process. And ceasefires that are problematic certainly impinge on the, you know, the environment for the political process. I hear, Miriam, we've been joined by a few chickens in the background. They're, they're welcome to be part of this podcast. But l let me ask my next question, <laughs> nonetheless, with, with that in the background. Um, 
you talk about some of the more skeptical voices in government. Can you give me an example of a time where you had to sit down with the police or military and talk to them, talk to them about their actions and how it might be even undermining the process? We organize a lot of consultations with the regional police, the different commands. And these forums have been very difficult because they were very vocal. They will voice their opposition. They will tell stories of violence. I was trying to convince them on very rational grounds that, look, you have this violent story to tell, but they too have this violent story to tell. So how do we move on and stay together and live peacefully? We have to see the hurts that each one has experienced. But there will still be this kind of skepticism. And then finally, the general who was with me, he closed the argument by saying, this is government policy. The commander of chief wants this peace process to happen and you'd better follow. <laughs> <laughs> and that's precisely how he closed the discussion. But of course, it doesn't mean that inside that they've already convinced, right? It takes much longer to convince them. And in addition to the police and military, you also have to accommodate the political opposition, uh, church groups, local politicians in Mindanao. How did you bring everyone on board and balance all those different interests? A lot of discussions, a lot of private conversations with individuals. I do remember a conversation with a priest saying, I will never be a Bangsamoro, which is the identity, the name of the identity that they have adopted for themselves. Because I'm a settler, I wasn't born from this area, and I'm, I'm an outsider. So I had to tell him, you may not be a Bangsamoro, but you have all the rights of a citizen inside if you're a resident of the Bangsamoro region. But you can be a Bangsamoro if you get married to one, because that's part of the definition. Unfortunately, he's a Catholic priest, and he just can't get married. So all of these little things, sometimes you have to convince them not necessarily through hardcore arguments, but through humor. So it's sort of like you need to turn the tables around so that they can get into that kind of a perspective coming from the other side. It's always that not being able to see where the other is coming from. And that's very true even for the formal political negotiations. One has to be like an outsider of the process, observing the other and not be too enamored or not to be too engrossed with one's own position on the issue. It sounds like a lot of what you did was trying to build empathy and ask people to put themselves in the shoes of those on the other side. Yes. And of course, sometimes you got into trouble with that, you know, like on whose side are you on? But it's two way. It's two way. You say that to the government, and then you say that as well to the other armed group. And that's the harder part, convincing the other armed group to look at it from the perspective of the government. Let's talk about when you finally meet the MILF. How do you think they saw you? I knew them before. I was a campaigner for the ban on the use of landmines, and we advocated stronger engagement with non-state armed groups within the international campaign to ban landmines. I was actually meeting with them secretly in some missions. So that meant that I had previous engagement with them. But that was in a different role. It was a different story altogether. When I became the protagonist, because that's how I was looked at in the beginning of the process, I was the other side, the enemy the one that was putting the obstacles on the way of getting what they want. But I was subjected to the same kind of, let's see what kind of 
person you are, how much you understand us, and how much you are actually able to convince your own party to understand us. What was your first formal meeting with them like in your capacity as negotiator? For them, it was a big question whether they were ready to do this with a woman. And were they? It took some time, I think. It took some time for them to say, we're ready to deal with any person, a man or a woman. They don't choose our negotiators. We didn't choose their negotiators. The reverse side of that is that we were saying to them that you should have more women or you should have women because they didn't have any in your team, right? We made sure that not only the women were making the point, we made sure that the men were speaking up, the international community was putting part of the pressure, the women's groups in our country were doing their own lobbying and pressuring because it just can't come from us all the time. And did it work? Did they end up bringing more women into the process? Very slowly, very gradually, they did. One or two women every time. Not much. But game changers because these women were good. Most of the time, I guess, they were more interested in bringing people with political clouds. And most of these would be men. But the real hard work of looking at drafts and texts about governance, fiscal autonomy, political autonomy, all of these ins and outs of governance, that's more technical. And the women that they brought in were very good at that. I understand that your negotiating team came up with some creative ideas to build trust with the other side involving food and music. Is that right? Well, we just remembered when their birthdays, we knew that somebody was celebrating a birthday. We just made sure we had something like a small gift or at least some kind of a greeting for that person. They weren't used to it, getting chocolates from us as well on Valentine's Day. These little gestures that, that, that showed you were treating them as individuals. Mm -hmm. But of course, they were also careful. There was a lot of pressure on them from their own constituency. They needed to show that they were not giving up what they fought for, for a long, long time. And they needed to do their own convincing within their ranks that some of the compromises are actually viable, doable, fair enough for everyone concerned. Let's talk a bit about the substance of the talks themselves, Miriam. And for a listener who won't know the context in Mindanao necessarily, can you give the gist of the basic demands that the MILF had and what the government's objectives were in as simple terms as possible? One is very basic, recognition of their unique identity. And then how to express that identity in the form of self-governance, particularly, or autonomy. But of course, autonomy, as you know, can take different forms. The more extreme expression of self-determination is independence. And that's something that government just won't allow. That was a red line. So if it's regional autonomy, then what kind of regional autonomy is it? What powers will the regional government have? So you're building trust in each other and making progress on these substantive issues. Which moments stand out as the major milestones? We had to finish four annexes. And when we got to the second, it was a wealth-sharing annex. And it was very difficult because we had to backtrack on some key positions. But when we signed that, then we know that we could get to the fourth. So the president had a very interesting metaphor for that. He was an exile during the Marcos regime in Boston. So he was very familiar with the Boston Marathon. And there's a point in the marathon where you have to go up a high hill, and it's called the heartbreak hill. But once you reach the top, 
there's just no way you won't finish. You have to finish the marathon. <laughs> and that's the kind of image that we're running in our minds. We're crossing the heartbreak hill. We've reached that point where we're about to descend, get to the other half of this annexes. And there's no reason why we should give up. I guess they also felt that way. There's no turning back at that point. No giving up. I want to turn to the dynamics of the third parties who tried to help the process. You had Malaysia as the facilitator, but also a group of states and NGOs under an umbrella called the International Contact Group, or ICG. What roles did they play? Yes, we did have a very interesting set of third parties for the formal talks. That's the key players, external players, who are, of course, the facilitator from Malaysia, Tengku Bafar, and the International Contact Group, who are observers, meaning they cannot speak unless they're asked to speak. But during breaks, and there were a lot of breaks, there are a lot of breaks in any talks. There were moments when crisscross shuttle diplomacy happens. And that's when the ICG is actually most active, during the breaks. It was good to hear what they're seeing or what they're hearing, which we might be missing in the heat of the discussion. I think there were times when we really appreciated that they were there. For instance, we had a very tense moment when we sent over our draft. So they gave us their draft, which was really thick, and we gave them a very short draft of our version two or three months later. And when they saw it, they were so disappointed. The MILF said the gap is between heaven and earth, between the two drafts, and they wanted to walk out. It was Ramadan. They hadn't really slept. They weren't eating in the morning. And what they wanted to do was to walk out because they just can't accept our draft. ICG stepped in trying to find a way out of the impasse. They convinced the MILF to formally convene again with us so that we can close the session, close the meeting in not a very bad way, which would upset the constituencies on the ground. The ICG also sort of helped looking at the two drafts and doing some kind of a matrix of the common points. And it showed that the two drafts were not entirely different, that there were important principles that were shared by the two drafts. And there were some starting points. And that sort of helped us save that moment. But of course, we needed to draw the line somewhere. We didn't want an ICG or a facilitator, for that matter, that was too aggressive with recommendations. We felt that, one, that was not their role to really give us all the answers. We wanted to find our own solutions. Second, we also thought that they might not necessarily understand where the government or the other parties coming from. As government, you have a lot of considerations in any single policy position that you undertake. And all of these considerations may not necessarily be visible, even to very good vegetation experts. I know that in some processes, third parties or facilitators actually did some of the drafting for this text. But not in our case. We thought that that was not the role to actually be writing the text. You talk about some of those tense moments in the process and, and no peace processes without its setbacks. What was the hardest to overcome? I think hardest, maybe in terms of being able to really implement it. On the government side, I had to temper expectations of the other side, one. Government is a bureaucracy. It doesn't deliver things fast. It takes time. 
Then on our side, the uncertainty of how ready the MILF was to really give up the arms and how to balance their giving up the arms with being able to stop the proliferation and use of arms by other armed groups in the same area because they won't give up the arms if other groups have arms. And of course, there's Congress as well because to implement the agreement, you need to pass the law. And Congress, as a body of politicians, can be quite flabby, can be quite short-term in their visions, meaning that getting them to agree to put the spirit and the letter of the agreement into the law was not an easy thing. It was difficult. I suppose that was more difficult for me, even being able to work with Congress on all of these issues than with the bureaucracy. Bureaucracy are made up of professional people. They're technical experts. They worry about technical things. Legislators worry about political things, especially their own political future. In addition to managing this different set of relationships with facilitators, international actors, you also had to make sure that voices from within the Philippines felt represented. How did you engage local civil society in the peace process? Since we actually took over the process, there's always been that kind of consciousness that you need this kind of participation from civil society. Our office had a liaison person to deal with civil society organizations. And sometimes we create ad hoc bodies for some kind of consultations on certain issues with them. Plus, they did their own thing. They did their own lobbying. They did their own campaigns. And that's very good because you can't do everything. And actually, nobody can do everything for this process. It really has to be all these different segments of state and society being able to see through a process. And at the end of all of that hard work, you signed the Comprehensive Agreement in 2014. Take me back to that moment. How did you feel? Well, relief. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure. Of course, relief. Uh, It's done. But very, very touching, really, to see the constituency, the Bangsamoa constituency, in tears during this ceremony. The ceremony was being broadcasted live, and it was being projected in big screens in different parts of the country, and most of them were actually gathered in one of their camps. So you can really see that kind of emotion that was pouring out. They had their people inside Malacanang Palace, And they were talking in terms of their own future. And that never happened before. Before it was war. Before Malacanang was a faraway place, the enemy. And now having their delegation inside, engaging the government in that kind of signing ceremony, it really meant a lot for them. And that was really very, very powerful for most of us. It sounded like it was an emotional moment and very moving for the people living in the Bangsamoro, and for you too, personally, I'm sure. Yes, of course. We needed to implement. The president's term was ending in 2016. We signed in 2014. We had less than two years to make sure that the foundation for the institution of the autonomous region and all the other socioeconomic components, security and socioeconomic components, are going to be put in place. And that was the biggest challenge. Unfortunately, we didn't really succeed. For instance, on transitional justice, The president had to make the needed appointments for the body that will uh, facilitate the implementation of the transitional justice component. But he was running out of time, and on the night before the deadline, it wasn't signed. 
we felt very bad about that because this is a very important aspect of the agreement on the transitional justice. And what lessons do you take from that, Miriam? At the end of the day, what's important is the commitment to the process. Because any peace process will experience delays. It will experience all of these outbreaks of hostilities, even after you have signed the agreement. But what's important is that the parties are committed not to return to violence. And I think that's what we saw. That's what we saw on the part of the military. That's what we saw on the part of the MILF. And looking at the situation in Mindanao today, with the Bank Samora being governed by former MILF rebels, do you think it serves as proof that these difficult transitions are possible? I think so, yes. We are at a very crucial point now where elections will happen in 2022. There is a campaign to actually extend the transition, meaning no elections in the region. For the transition authority to remain, there is the option of having the regular elections take place and everything being lost if traditional politicians actually take over and govern the way they used to in the old way. Or there's that other danger that you skip the election, allow for a longer transition period, but you entrench and you make the MILF too comfortable and they fall back on their type of governance and revert to the old way as well. More recently, between 2018 and 2020, you were a member of the UN standby team of senior mediation advisors. How did you make the switch from negotiator working on behalf of the government of the Philippines to mediator, facilitator, advisor, working between different parties across the world? The same kind of frame of mind and heart, I think, is applicable, whether you're a negotiator or mediator, to be able to be effective. We discuss this a lot when we talk about empathy, the need to be able to see things from the other side, from the other side's perspective. So whether you're a negotiator, but especially if you're the mediator, you need to see that. And you need to see the common ground more, because in a very politicized partisan process, that common ground might not be too obvious or not too visible to the parties concerned. And the mediator plays that kind of role. Do you think it made you a better advisor having been a negotiator yourself before? And, you know, what advice would you give to negotiators now that you've also been on the other side, kind of sitting in the middle? These are two different mandates. So you do need to be conscious of your mandate. But Whichever mandate you have, there's that need to be flexible and creative. To take risks, I think, is very important because if you try to play safe all the time, you might not be able to transform the situation. I'm coming from that position of having been part of a process firsthand and very much part of the decision-making. And that's a very important experience that helped me see dynamics and appreciate the difficulties. Let's talk about some of your broader reflections on your work and, and career. Being the first woman negotiator to sign a final peace agreement has prescribed you the role of a spokesperson or advocate for, for women in mediation. Whether you want that or not, is that a blessing or a burden or a bit of both? When we signed the agreement, I didn't know the I will be the first woman in the world in the 21st century to actually sign a peace agreement as chief negotiator. That was good because it had to happen sometime, right? But that meant that, well, a glass ceiling has been broken. Let's move on. 
let's make it happen more. And that's how I feel about it. But at other times, of course, you sort of get boxed into a certain position. I think a lot of feminists experience this. People start thinking that you can only talk about feminism. When you can actually talk about security, hard stuff, you can talk about anything under the moon. Being a feminist is not your only expertise. And that's a danger when you sort of become representational of uh, women who have pioneered in uh, certain ways especially in mediation, where security issues are considered masculine, hard stuff. So that's a disadvantage. And looking ahead and, and putting your UN hat back on, Miriam, you know, we've had several UN mediators in the mediator studio who've talked about the challenges around mandates and resources. From what you've seen in the field, what do you think needs to change? I think the UN really is carrying a lot of burden. First, there are the norm-building tasks that they have to do. And what's really different about peace processes in this current context is that kind of pressure to really be more inclusive. And that's a good thing. But we know it's not that easy to be always inclusive. We know that inclusivity doesn't also guarantee success. But the norm is important. So the UN has that kind of difficulty to be able to balance both the practical and also the norm building the goals that it has set up, which is very, very important in terms of the long run, in terms of what kind of values will govern this world. And at the same time, they might have mandates that might be too limited, which means that they are actually incapacitated to do more, even though they know that they needed to do more because of what they're seeing, the way the conflict or the process is going. So there's a problem of limited mandate. And add to that, very limited resources. Miriam, is that something you're trying to impart to your students? I understand you're doing a lot of teaching at the moment. You know, what's the most important lesson that you try to instill in them? One is, of course, to be smart, <laughs> to do things smartly, <laughs> because you can't keep doing the same things and expect, as the cliche goes, expect different results. And then to do things, to change things. And that's very important because actually we need everybody to be radicals. Radicals in a peaceful, non-violent way, because the status quo is something that does need to be changed. And if you talk about social transformation, political transformation, there's a lot of things to do. And everyone has really to find their own niche within that kind of options of how to make one's life more meaningful. Well, on that inspirational note for the future, Miriam, there we must end. Miriam Coronel Ferrer, thank you so much for being my guest in the Mediator Studio. And thank you to the chickens nearby who've been making their voices heard during our interview. We've appreciated both of your contributions. Thank you. And with that, we bring season two to a close. To get new episodes as soon as they're released, make sure you subscribe. The Mediator Studio team loves hearing your feedback and suggestions. If you have a moment, please fill out our very short listener survey. You can find the link in the show notes and on our website. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at Adam Talks Peace. The Mediator Studio is an Oslo Forum podcast brought to you by the Centre for Humanitarian Dialogue and the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Our managing editor is Christina Buchold and the show is produced by Christopher Gunnis. Research for this episode was done by Evie Kressner. Neither peacemaking nor podcasts happen without lots of work behind the scenes. My thanks go to our whole production team in Geneva, Rosie Fowler and Giles Pitts, and in Oslo, Elizabeth Schlattum, Ellen Fadness and David Jordan. I do hope that you'll join us for the next season of The Mediator Studio, 
But until then, that's all from me, Adam Cooper. Thank you for listening.